and welcome to this Throwback Thursday edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. This episode was originally published on May 15th, 2015, and we've chosen it because it's a good encapsulation of the impact of capitalism on culture, which is a topic that never goes out of style, but doesn't necessarily get addressed all too often. Sources include The Majority Report, The Laura Flanders Show, a TED Talk by Sean Acor, Decode DC, and Economic Update. I called about a year and a half ago, and I discussed culture. Uh, and I was listening to Philip Mikowski, uh, and you sort of touched upon how the profit motive and money had sort of overtaken all other values in the society, which is sort of what we were talking about a uh, year and a half ago. I remember that conversation. Was that really a year and a half ago? I know. It seems like yesterday, but I think it was, yeah, probably uh, summer... Yeah, last summer at some point. Okay. Um, so anyway, I wanted to follow up, which is to say, uh, I, I read some of the comments after you had posted uh, that conversation on YouTube, and uh, and a lot of them were quite defensive. Um, like, who are you to say, you know, what our culture should be, and and uh, are you really, you know, uh, demeaning or? Uh, denigrating, you know, everybody and our culture? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, yes. I, I think that we now have a culture that is unsustainable. And I think that for a variety of reasons, the left can no longer deal with the issue of culture. Uh, and But by not addressing culture, what it really represents is sort of an abdication or an abnegation of our responsibility to change, which seems very much like a rightist kind of other blame, except that in this case, we're always demanding that corporations change or that our, you know, politicians change. And once again, there's absolutely so little discussion on the left that this culture and the way that we live our lives is not, no, is not sustainable, it's not good, it's not conducive to progressive causes and to progressive ideals. It's a rightist culture that's um, a very corporate culture. It's about technophilia. It's about overconsumption, excess, selfishness, more, new, better, me, me, me. And uh, I think until you address those values, which is to say the norms and the mores and, and the, uh, the culture, I, I, I really see no possibility that we're going to be able to shape a future that uh, we'll want to see. You know, I, I mean, I think I, and, and, and just to remind people, it was uh, Professor Philip Murawski, and it was, he had a book, I, the, the title escapes me, but it was on basically the intellectual history of, of neoliberalism. And, right. um, and, but I, and, and I agree, I mean, I think that you and I, uh, if I recall that conversation, you know, sort of agreed um, on the critique of culture. I'm not so sh- clear. I'm not so convinced that um, that the that the that it follows, the, or, or that the 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 political change, the societal change, follows from a. Uh, from the cultural change it's possible mm-hmm. i mean i you know at one point something changed and you know and and we haven't had this conversation very much recently uh certainly we had it a lot more uh a couple of years ago and it's one you know that i keep trying to veer back to and uh it's hard to find people writing about this to a certain extent but um, the question is, is like, you know, at one point, um, at one point, money became such an ascendant value that it trumped all of I me mean, because there was a counterculture. Right. And there was a time uh, and, and for much of the 20th century where you could have value in a community as uh as a producer of things or as an organizer or um without money being a um money being a marker of the quality of what you've produced 
mm-hmm. and you could be applauded, not necessarily in spite of the fact that you're not making money, although that was the case. Um, but, um, you know, so in other words, you could have actual independent film and be held in high esteem, even if there was no commercial successfulness of those films. And it is, um, not so much the case in our society anymore. And I mean, you know, uh, Naomi Klein's book, I think, you know, talks about the unsustainability of our, our system more broadly speaking, uh, in light of climate change. And, and I think what you're talking about is, uh, this culture that, that places a material wealth and the, uh, and the pursuit of it at, as the, as the highest ascendant value, even in areas that have traditionally not been about that art and music and, uh, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know if one would follow the other. In other words, my sense is that the best, like, you know, just speaking from my limited experience, um, when my pursuits were a little bit more artistic, the best material and the best product, the best comedy I ever, you know, uh, was a part of, it was generally where there was the least amount of money involved. Where that, 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 where, you know, in those stages of, uh, the work that I was doing and with other people was generally speaking when, um, there was really no, you know, thinking about your career really was almost silly on some level. Um, where it was generally when the best work was done. Not only silly, but there was actually, you know, uh, either what needs to happen is you, or both, you glorify less, which is, you know, I think probably the major task of the left at this point in history is to figure out how to make less cool. Uh, it sounds really superficial and silly, but it's an incredibly important issue that very few people are, are thinking about at a time that the planet is, you know, telling us that it's ready to collapse. Uh, and But if you think about it, I'd like to think that it was all about Reagan and, and, and certainly uh, privatization of everything helped to uh, breed this sort of culture. Yeah. But even in the in the 90s, if I think about Kurt Cobain and his struggles about not wanting to sell out, right. and I think about early rappers, YZ and, and others, you know, telling uh, young black youth, don't sell out, don't sell out. That was 1992-ish. Right. And then, uh, you know, and then you had Biggie and you had Puffy, and then that was you know, the corporate culture, uh, and that's how, you know, basically hip-hop became corporatized and, and consumerized. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that it wasn't that long ago that you still had these sorts of... Right. Uh, I mean, I remember, and, I, I, frankly, I remember the feeling, you know, going to see uh, Nirvana, and uh, maybe it was 91 or something, during the Bleach tour, and people were getting a oh. little bit upset that, like, they were getting big. And, um, and there was some of that, like, I, and maybe that dynamic exists today. I don't know. I, I, because I'm not, but I don't, I don't get the sense that it is. I mean, now, like, sort of, uh, but, but, all right, here's just one, one thing to add into that. And then, um, uh, you know, we should continue to have this conversation because I think it's a good one. And again, if anybody knows any writing, uh, uh, around this, uh, Books, even if they're a little bit uh, uh, dated, uh, send them to me at majorityreporters at gmail dot com because I would love to get into this stuff. But you know, I noticed a piece today talking about how millennials, people born, I guess, uh, nineteen eighty five to two thousand, roughly, are using cars less, and um, there's no, no clear data as to why that's the case. It may have to do with just like. They never were around when gas was, was cheap, uh, or they are moving, they're tending to live in cities more, or that, uh, they don't perceive cars as the status symbols that other generations have. Um, they value their, their computer and their phones more than their cars, which, you know, theoretically has to do with connectivity. I mean, it's a, it could be a different value. Um, they, they connect with people online more. Nobody's quite sure why, but that's an example of a culture changing. And um, it one also having sort of, you know, 
positive effects, I, in my estimation. Uh, but the question is, can you extrapolate that and build on that? Or is that a function of, or has it gone the opposite direction? In other words, that's a function of it being expensive to own a car. And you can live a better life now as a younger person in a city, perhaps, because you can get roommates and it's not and you're still connected to people and there's more things for you to do on a low cost as opposed to living out in the suburbs. I don't know. But you see, my point there is that if it was the cost of gas and simply uh, the lack of money that people have to buy a nice car, so they're just not going to engage in cars as a status symbol, then the argument would be that broader um, policy decisions can affect the culture as opposed to the culture saying, we don't like cars anymore, and then just them not buying cars. You see what I'm saying? Right. No, I, I hope I hope that is the case, and I have seen something to that effect, that, that uh, millennials are driving more, but I still see, unfortunately, less, very much the same kind of consumerism uh, generally, but uh, and I, I still see, unfortunately, status symbols, especially kind of a, a compensatory consumerism as someone who's been to ghettos of various races and, and creeds, uh, and uh, and it doesn't matter if you're in Paraguay and the countryside where everybody's status symbol is a motorbike, or in Kansas where I was, where it's incredibly poor. And everybody has a $20,000 house and an $80,000 souped-up Dodge Ram, uh, or whether it's uptown in Harlem where, you know, you see everybody wearing tags on their, you know, hats or shoes to show that these are, you know, brand new and were just bought. And so I still see a lot of that, unfortunately, and it's not anything to do with a specific race or anything like that, but I still see, unfortunately, that... uh as Leonard Cohen once said, the uh, the rich have got their channels in the bedrooms of the poor, and I think that with TV, you still have you know rich people uh, and corporations sort of deciding the culture, yep. and unfortunately, it's being fed into uh, communities that uh, and there's no pushback anymore. Age calls ours an age of acquiescence. We've become a nation of acceptors, its author argues, willing to tolerate corporate crime and public poverty as inevitable outcomes of a system that's just rigged. The current public debate, author Stephen Fraser suggests, reflects a resignation that market capitalism is bedrock, unchangeable, simply the way things are. A century after the Gilded Age and the rise of corporate power, we've become wusses by comparison. Back then, wealth was just as condensed. The richest 1% owned over half of it all, while the bottom 44 shared just 1.1%. Theirs was an age of sit-down strikes and rebellions, though. Troops, not just cops, routinely hit the streets. What happened? As followers of our program know, at the Laura Flanders Show, we don't believe there's so much resignation. There's more rising going on out there than our money media show. Still, there's truth in Fraser's case that 19th century unrest was fueled in part by a different frame of reference. To 19th century factory workers, the age of alienation was new. Descendants of subsistence farmers and self-employed craftsmen, many of them remembered, as we do not, an alternative, and they chafed at logging in and logging out. Wage slavery, they called it. When I asked a class of college students what they understood that term to mean, a room of blank faces stared back at me not long ago. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin said upon receiving a National Book Award last fall. But then again, she said, so did the divine right of kings. In hard times, Le Guin said, we just may need fiction. Writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality, she said. Which is why there's so much to celebrate in the publication of a new book, Octavia's Brood, an anthology of visionary science fiction written by social justice organizers and activists. Can we rely on memory to imagine alternatives? Not in the way the 19th century rabble could. But in our time, we just may have radical science fiction, as the editors put it, to help us decolonize our brains. 
our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. When I was seven years old and my sister was just five years old, we were playing on top of a bunk bed. I was two years older than my sister at the time. I mean, I'm two years older than her now, but at the, <laughs> at the time that meant she had to do everything that I wanted to do and I wanted to play war. So we were up on top of our bunk beds and on one side of the bunk bed, I had put out all my GI Joe soldiers and weaponry. And on the other side were all my sisters, my lows and ponies and ready for a cavalry charge. There are differing accounts of what actually happened that afternoon, but since my sister is not here with us today, um, let me tell you the true story. <laughs> Which is, my sister is a little bit on the clumsy side, and somehow, without any help or push from her older brother at all, suddenly Amy disappeared off of the top of the bunk bed and landed with this crash on the floor. And I nervously peered over the side of the bed to see what had befallen my fallen sister, and saw that she had landed painfully on her hands and knees on all fours on the ground. I was nervous because my parents had charged me with making sure that my sister and I played as safely and as quietly as possible. And seeing as how I had accidentally broken Amy's arm just one week before, <laughs> heroically pushing her out of the way of an oncoming imaginary sniper bullet, <laughs> for which I have yet to be thanked, I was trying as hard as I could... She didn't even see it coming. I was trying as hard as I could to be on my best behavior, and I saw my sister's face's wail of pain and suffering and surprise, threatening to erupt from her mouth and threatening to wake my parents from the long winter's nap for which they had settled. So I did the only thing my little frantic seven-year-old brain could think to do to avert this tragedy. If you have children, you've seen this hundreds of times before. I said, Amy, Amy, wait, don't cry, don't cry. Did you see how you landed? No human lands on all fours like that. Amy, I think this means you're a unicorn. Now that was cheating because there's nothing in the world my sister would want more than not to be Amy the hurt five-year-old little sister, but Amy the special unicorn. Of course, this was an option that was open to her brain at no point in the past. And you could see on my poor, manipulated sister's face conflict. As her little brain attempted to devote resources to feeling the pain and suffering surprise she just experienced, or contemplating her newfound identity as a unicorn. And the latter one out. Instead of crying, instead of ceasing our play, instead of waking my parents with all the negative consequences that would have ensued for me, Instead, a smile spread across her face, and she scrambled right back up onto the bunk bed with all the grace of a baby unicorn. <laughs> with one broken leg. Well, we stumbled across. At this tender age of just five and seven, we had no idea at the time was something that was going to be at the vanguard of a scientific revolution occurring two decades later in the way that we look at the human brain. What we had stumbled across is something called positive psychology, which is the reason that I'm here today and the reason that I wake up every morning. When I first started talking about this research outside of academia, out with companies and schools, the very first thing they said to never do is to start your talk with a graph. The very first thing I wanted to do is start my talk with a graph. This graph looks boring, but this graph is the reason that I get excited and wake up every morning. Morning. And this graph doesn't even mean anything. It's fake data. What we found is... <laughs> if I got this data back studying you here in the room, I would be thrilled because there's very clearly a trend that's going on there and that means that I can get published, which is all that really matters. <laughs> the fact that there's one weird red dot that's up above the curve, there's one weird in the room, you know who you are, I saw you earlier. <laughs> that's no problem. That's no problem as most of you know because... I can just delete that dot. I can delete that dot because that's clearly a measurement error. And we know that's a measurement error because it's messing up my data. So one of the very first things that we teach people in economics and statistics and business and psychology courses is how in a statistically valid way do we eliminate the weirdos? How do we eliminate the outliers? So that we can find the line of best fit, which is fantastic if I'm trying to find out how many Advil the average person should be taking, too. But if I'm interested in potential, if I'm interested in your potential or for happiness or productivity or energy or creativity, what we're doing is we're creating the cult of the average with science. If I ask a question like, how fast can a child learn how to read in a classroom? Scientists change the answer to, how fast does the average child learn how to read in that classroom? And then we tailor the class right towards the average. Now, if you fall below the average on this curve, then psychologists get thrilled. Because that means you're either depressed, or you have a disorder, or hopefully both. 
We're hoping for both because our business model is if you come into a therapy session with one problem, we want to make sure you leave knowing you have 10. So you'll keep coming back over and over again. We'll go back into your childhood if necessary, but eventually what we want to do is to make you normal again. But normal is merely average. And what I posit and what positive psychology posits is that if we study what is merely average, we will remain merely average. Then instead of deleting those positive outliers, what I intentionally do is come into a population like this one and says, why? Why is it that some of you are so high above the curve in terms of your intellectual ability, athletic ability, musical ability, creativity, energy levels, your resiliency in the face of challenge, your sense of humor? Whatever it is, instead of deleting you, what I want to do is study you. Because maybe we can glean information, not just how to move people up to the average, but how we can move the entire average up at our companies and schools worldwide. The reason this graph is important to me is when I turn on the news, it seems like the majority of the information is not positive. In fact, it's negative. Most of it's about murder, corruption, diseases, natural disasters. And very quickly, my brain starts to think that's the accurate ratio of negative positive in the world. What that's doing is creating something called the medical school syndrome, which if you know people who have been to medical school during the first year of medical training, as you read through a list of all the symptoms and diseases that could happen, suddenly you realize you have all of them. <laughs> I have a brother-in-law named Bobo, which is a whole other story. Bobo <laughs> married Amy the Unicorn. Bobo called me on the phone <laughs> from Yale Medical School. From Yale Medical School, and Bobo said, Sean, I have leprosy. <laughs> which even at Yale is extraordinarily rare. But I had no idea how to console poor Bobo because he had just gotten over an entire week of menopause. See, what we're finding is it's not necessarily the reality that shapes us, but the lens through which your brain views the world that shapes your reality. And if we can change the lens, not only can we change your happiness, we can change every single educational and business outcome at the same time. When I applied to Harvard, I applied on a dare. I didn't expect to get in, and my family had no money for college. When I got a military scholarship two weeks later, they allowed me to go. Suddenly, something that wasn't even a possibility became a reality. When I went there, I assumed everyone else would see it as a privilege as well, that they'd be excited to be there. Even if you're in a classroom full of people smarter than you, you'd be happy just to be in that classroom, which is what I felt. But what I found there is while some people experienced that, when I graduated after my four years and then spent the next eight years living in the dorms with the students, Harvard asked me to. I um, wasn't that guy. But what happened... <laughs> I was an officer of Harvard to counsel students through the difficult four years. And what I found in my research, my teaching is that these students, no matter how happy they were with their original success of getting into the school, two weeks later, their brains were focused not on the privilege of being there, nor on their philosophy or their physics. Their brain was focused on the competition, the workload, the hassles, the stresses, the complaints. When I first went in there, I walked into the freshman dining hall, which is where my friends from Waco, Texas, which is where I grew up. I know some of you have heard of it. Um, when, I, when they come to visit me, they look around, they say, this freshman dining hall looks like something I've Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, which it does. This is Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, and that's Harvard. And when they see this, they say, Sean, why do you waste your time studying happiness at Harvard? Seriously, what does a Harvard student possibly have to be unhappy about? Embedded within that question is the key to understanding the science of happiness. Because what that question assumes is that our ex external world is predictive of our happiness levels. When in reality, if I know everything about your external world, I can only predict 10% of your long-term happiness. 90% of your long-term happiness is predicted not by the external world, but by your, the way your brain processes the world. And if we change it, if we change our formula for happiness and success, what we can do is change the way that we can then affect reality. What we found is that only 25% of job successes are predicted by IQ. 75% of job successes are predicted by your optimism levels, your social support, and your ability to see stress as a challenge instead of as a threat. I talked to a boarding school up in New England, probably the most prestigious boarding school, and they said, we already know that. So every year, instead of just teaching our students, we also have a wellness week, and we're so excited. Monday night, we have the world's leading expert coming in to speak about adolescent depression. Tuesday night is school violence and bullying. Wednesday night, <laughs> Wednesday night is eating disorders. Thursday night is illicit drug use. And Friday night, we're trying to decide between risky sex or happiness. <laughs> I said, that's most people's Friday nights. <laughs> which I'm glad you liked, but they did not like that at all. Silence on the phone. And into the silence, I said, I'd be happy to speak at your school, but just so you know, that's not a wellness week. That's a sickness week. What you've done is you've outlined all the negative things that can happen, but not talked about the positive. The absence of disease is not health. Here's how we get to health. We need to reverse the formula for happiness and success. In the past three years, I've traveled to 45 different countries, working with schools and companies in the midst of an economic downturn. And what I found is that most companies and schools follow a formula for success, which is this. If I work harder, I'll be more successful. And if I'm more successful, then I'll be happier. 
That undergirds most of our parenting styles, our managing styles, the way that we motivate our behavior. And the problem is it's scientifically broken and backwards for two reasons. First, every time your brain has a success, you just change the goalpost of what success looked like. You got good grades, now you have to get better grades. You got into a good school, now you have to get a better school. You got a good job, now you have to get a better job. You hit your sales target, we're going to change your sales target. And if happiness is on the opposite side of success, your brain never gets there. What we've done is we've pushed happiness over the cognitive horizon as a society. And that's because we think we have to be successful, then we'll be happier. But the real problem is our brains work in the opposite order. If you can raise somebody's level of positivity in the present, then their brain experiences what we now call a happiness advantage, which is your brain at positive performs significantly better than it does at negative, neutral, or stressed. Your intelligence rises, your creativity rises, your energy levels rise. In fact, what we found is that every single business outcome improves. Your brain at positive is 31% more productive than your brain at negative, neutral, or stressed. You're 37% better at sales. Doctors are 19% faster, more accurate at coming up with the correct diagnosis when positive instead of negative, neutral, or stressed, which means we can reverse the formula. If we can find a way of becoming positive in the present, then our brains work even more successfully as we're able to work harder, faster, and more intelligently. What we need to be able to do is to reverse this formula so we can start to see what our brains are actually capable of. Because dopamine, which floods into your system when you're positive, has two functions. Not only does it make you happier, it turns on all the learning centers in your brain, allowing you to adapt to the world in a different way. We found that there are ways you can train your brain to be able to become more positive. In just a two-minute span of time, done for 21 days in a row, we can actually rewire your brain, allowing your brain to actually work more optimistically and more successfully. We've done these things in research now in every single company that I've worked with, getting them to write down three new things that they're grateful for for 21 days in a row, three new things each day. And at the end of that, their brain starts to retain a pattern of scanning the world, not for the negative, but for the positive first. Journaling about one positive experience you've had over the past 24 hours allows your brain to relive it. Exercise teaches your brain that your behavior matters. We find that meditation allows your brain to get over the cultural ADHD that we've been creating by trying to do multiple tasks at once and allows our brains to focus on the task at hand. And finally, random acts of kindness or conscious acts of kindness. We get people, when they open up their inbox, to write one positive email, praising or thanking somebody in their social support network. And by doing these activities and by training your brain, just like we train our bodies, what we found is we could reverse the formula for happiness and success and in doing so, not only create ripples of positivity, but create a real revolution. to introduce you to Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. I'm going to abandon journalistic detachment for just a moment to say that this is the most stimulating work of nonfiction I have read in years. Sapiens was published in Hebrew in 2011. It's been translated into 26 languages and now it's out in English. It's a bestseller in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Harari is a historian at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, but he doesn't fit into the usual academic boxes. The very idea of writing a history of the species is itself an audacious and even grandiose notion, especially when the author is still in his 30s. The genius of this book is in the questions it asks. Two very important things is that this book uh, tries to give the entire picture of history from the very beginning up until the 21st century and actually going even into the future, trying to uh, see what are the possibilities ahead of us. And in doing so, the book combines insights from biology with insights from history and from the humanities. My basic understanding is that you can't really do history without biology, but biology isn't enough. It's just the basis. And uh, so you have to combine the two. And secondly, it was very important for me to try and understand not only uh, what happened in history, but also its deeper meaning, especially in terms of the lives of individuals. So throughout the book, one of the main questions was not only what happened, but did it make people more miserable, happier? How did it influence the daily life of the average individual? Which is uh, something that comes through enormously in the book, people have written about evolution, progress, the basics of human history for a long time, but you seem to ask questions like, was the agricultural revolution good or bad for us as a species? Is progress good? 
you ask these questions in a way that is strikingly new. Yes, I I think what is really new is the attempt to ask questions about happiness and suffering. Usually when we describe history, we focus on questions of power, uh, how our species gained power, how particular kingdoms and empires and collectives gained power, and how particular individuals like Genghis Khan or Hitler gained power. So most of history, in, in, in most history books, revolves around questions of power. And power is, of course, very important, but there is another side to the story, and this is the side of happiness and suffering. And for me, the basic question is, how does power get translated into happiness or suffering? Humankind has an amazing ability to acquire power, but we seem to be much less capable when it comes to translating power into happiness. And again and again, you see throughout history this phenomenon that humankind is becoming far more powerful than before, but people are not becoming happier, and the world is not becoming a better place. And this for me was the, 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 maybe the most interesting and most important thing about history is to understand this relation, this complex relation between power and happiness. Why is it this vicious cycle of progress versus happiness? Well, there are three main mechanisms that uh, scholars have identified. First of all, happiness does not really depend on objective conditions. Happiness depends far more on expectations. We are happy not when things are good, but when our expectations are fulfilled. And the problem with progress is that when conditions improve, expectations also increase. Uh, There is, for instance, the example of the Arab Spring and the revolution in Egypt in 2011. Mubarak resigns. Tahrir Square responds. About an hour after the news was announced across the square, that wall of sound is still there, barely diminished. If you think in objective terms about the living conditions of the average Egyptian, things were never so good as under Husni Mubarak. Nevertheless, as we all know, Egyptians were not terribly happy with the Mubarak regime. They made a revolution and toppled him, and now they are probably disappointed with the results of that as well. A second mechanism is on the biological level. What really determines human happiness or misery is not events in the outside world, but it is the uh, condition of our biochemical system within our body. We still have basically the same biochemistry as in the Middle Ages or in the ancient world. And because what determines our happiness or misery is the biochemistry, not the economy, not politics. So things haven't really changed, despite all the enormous historical and technological progress uh, of humankind. And the third major explanation, perhaps the deepest explanation, is that the most basic reaction of the human mind to pleasure and to achievement is not satisfaction, but rather it is craving for more. Even when people experience something very pleasant, even when they have some big achievement, the reaction is not to be satisfied, but to be afraid that they will lose what they have or to crave to have even more. Let me tell you something. There is no nobility in poverty. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Because at least as a rich man, when I have to face my problems, I show up in the back of a limo wearing a $2,000 suit and a $40,000 gold f***ing watch. And because this is the most basic pattern of the human mind, no matter what humans have achieved throughout history, they are never satisfied, they simply crave for more. And this is what has been pushing 
history forward uh, in the economic, in the technological field, in the political field, this is why we have acquired so much power, but we haven't become more satisfied than we were thousands of years ago. Harari readily admits that trying to answer questions about how happy or content humans were in the distant past is speculative, but he says there are some good clues and scientific foundations. A good example of that comes from the agricultural revolution that occurred about 12,000 years ago. When it comes to the agricultural revolution, we have quite a lot of evidence uh, which is relevant to these issues of, of happiness and suffering. For instance, we know, and, and this, is, this we know from a lot of archaeological and anthropological evidence, that uh, people suffered far more from disease after the agricultural revolution than before, because most infectious diseases that plague humankind actually come from domesticated animals, like cattle and sheep and pigs, even today. More than 700 people have now died of swine flu across India since January. Most of them... The bird flu has struck a second egg farm in Iowa. About 5.3 million laying hens will be destroyed after tests confirmed the outbreak. The USDA Almost every year, we hear about an epidemic of avian flu coming from domesticated chickens or an epidemic of swine flu coming from domesticated pigs. Uh, prior to the agricultural revolution, hunter-gatherers subsisted by eating dozens of different species of animals and plants and mushrooms and berries and nuts and so forth. So they got a very rich and balanced diet with all the nutrients and minerals and vitamins they needed. In contrast, most peasants, uh, for much of history, subsisted on a single staple crop, like wheat in the Middle East or potatoes in South America or rice in East Asia, their diet was much poor, far less balanced, with far fewer minerals and vitamins and, and so forth. So they had a, a worse diet. And in addition to all these problems, they suffered far more from social hierarchies and social exploitation. In small hunter-gatherer tribes, there was very little uh, room for social hierarchies and exploitation. But once you have the agricultural revolution, you witness the rise of cities and kingdoms and empires and very big gaps between a very small elite that monopolizes most of the wealth and the vast majority of the population. If we adopt the viewpoint of a Chinese peasant in the Middle Ages, or even of uh, working-class people today in the world, suddenly the agricultural revolution seems like a far worse idea. There are hundreds of millions of people today in the world that live much harder lives than their ancestors tens of thousands of years ago. Slavery was overthrown. Here in the United States, we had a civil war, which was the form of the revolution which overthrew slavery, made slavery illegal, as it is now written uh, in that amendment of our Constitution. Feudalism, the system that existed for a thousand years or more in Europe, with lords and serfs, that was overthrown by a revolution, one we celebrate called the French Revolution of 1789. And finally, capitalism faced a revolution in 1917 in Russia, 1949 in China, and so on. A revolution in which people calling themselves socialists said we can't stand capitalism anymore and we're building another system. In the case of slavery, feudalism and capitalism, Passions were raised. These revolutions were thought to usher in, by their leaders and by their followers, a realm of freedom, of democracy, of human liberation. And in the name of those things, those revolutions were carried out. People rallied to that cause, hoping for that liberation and freedom. But it didn't come. Sure, did people get a better life? Absolutely. Slaves were freed. Serfs were freed. 
And in the revolutions against capitalism, people's education and medical care and housing were provided as a matter of right, something which still doesn't exist where private capitalism is dominant. So advances were made, make no mistake. But the promises, the hopes of human liberation and freedom were not realized. And that has made large numbers of people skeptical about the very idea of revolution. Made people imagine that human liberation was an unachievable goal. Something you dream about, but do not mistake for a achievable reality. And I would like to talk to you about that in our remaining time. What happened in the revolutions against slavery, feudalism, and capitalism? Let's take a look. When the slaves were freed, the relationship master and slave was destroyed. In the United States Civil War, it was made illegal. Abraham Lincoln liberated the slaves. And there will be no more slavery in the United States, etc., etc. This was spectacular. This was a real freedom. This was an advance in human history. Slavery has been basically outlawed, with some notable exceptions, ever since. But, was the slave liberated? Here's the irony. Yes, but also no. Weren't a slave anymore. Yes. But no, you weren't liberated because in many cases, for example, here in the United States, the slave, no longer a slave, now free, looked around and discovered that he or she, in order to live, had to become somebody's employee, had to get a job. And in the relationship of employee to employer, these folks, these ex-slaves, discovered that human liberation and freedom were not available. They had to do what in their new position as an employee? They had to come to work five days a week. They had to pour their brains and muscles into a job. And the employer paid them less than the value of what those workers produced. Because the difference between what the employer paid the worker and what the worker produced, we call that value added by the worker through his or her labor, what the worker produced was worth more than what the employer paid the worker, which is how the capitalist system works. The employer is in it for the profit, which honest employers will tell you. They know they're getting more from those workers than they pay for because that's where the profit comes from. So the slaves discovered that they were now in a capitalist system and that while that was an advance, it wasn't the liberation that they had imagined. Same thing for the feudal serf, tied to the land, subject to the landlord, from 500 A.D. to at least 16, 1700 in Europe, feudalism is the dominant system. And eventually, the serfs rise up. They can't stand it. Took them a thousand years in Europe. And in 1789, in the French Revolution, what were the slogans? Liberty, equality, fraternity. Liberté, égalité, fraternité in French. That's what those peasants wanted. Not just better food and shelter, that for sure, but also liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Well, they got the revolution. They overthrew feudalism. No more serfs tied to the land. People were free. No more landlord dictating what happened all the time. But they also got capitalism. And they discovered, the ex-serfs, that they were now employees and subject to the same lack of liberation that they had hoped for that I spoke earlier about in terms of the slaves. They were stuck in a capitalist system. Well, now let's finish the story. 
1917, the Soviet Union is born in a revolution against capitalism, the system of employers and employees, they thought. And they too spoke about freedom, equality, liberty, brotherhood, all of that. Again, like the revolutions against slavery, like the revolutions against feudalism. And what did they achieve? An advance for the Russian people? Of course there was an advance. In 1917, Russia was one of the poorest, most backward countries in Europe. Fifty years later, after this revolution had settled in, the Soviet Union was the world's second superpower after only the United States. They had become a modern, powerful, industrial country. Their revolution had achieved a lot. But did it achieve liberty, equality, fraternity, and all of that? Unquestionably not. So unquestionably not that in 1989, the Russian people had had enough of this and went back to private capitalism. Well, what had happened was in the Soviet Union, and this is similar to what happened in other parts of what we used to call the actually existing uh, socialist world. You had gotten rid of the private employer, but you had substituted the government employer. Instead of a board of directors of your company elected by the shareholders, you had a board of directors, whatever the name, selected by the governing communist party or the government. You had a state official taking your product after you produced it, rather than a private person. For most people in actually existing socialist countries, they still went to work nine to five, five days a week, and produced more than they got in the way of wages and salaries. So they were in a state capitalist system rather than a private capitalist system. But free of capitalism, they hadn't become. Now, is the lesson here that you... Is the lesson we want to learn that you can't have a revolution that achieves liberty, equality, and brotherhood? Not at all. The lesson here is that the great revolutions of the past against slavery, against feudalism, and against capitalism all made advances for the human community, but they all also missed something. And they all missed the same thing. And the important lesson for those thinking about revolution in the world today is to make sure they don't miss the lesson of the past, that revolution is possible, that revolution makes gains, but also that the gains made by the past revolutions missed something that can't afford to be missed again. What is it? In a nutshell, here it is. If you want to make a serious run at liberty, equality, and brotherhood, you have to organize the production process so that those values are in it. And that means you can't have some people producing more than they get back while other people get that extra without participating in producing it. The problem of slavery is that the slave produces a lot, the master gives the slave back relatively little and keeps the rest for himself and to keep his system going. The problem with feudalism was that the serf produced more than he got to keep and that extra was given to the Lord for his lifestyle. And the problem of capitalism is that when you go to work, you produce more than you get in a wage or salary. And that extra is the profit of the businesses, which they use to maintain their lifestyle, build their power, control the government, and so on. If you want that to change, you've got to change the organization of production. And the way to do that is to democratize it. To say that all production will be organized so that the workers who together produce it together decide what is done with the surplus or the profits they produce. Not some people get the profits while other people produce them. 
Not some people become wildly rich while everybody else is struggling to make ends meet. The minute you do that, you block the revolution from achieving the liberty, equality, and fraternity that was hoped for. This is not an impossible dream. Let me conclude by showing you why. In feudalism that lasted for a thousand years in Europe, slowly, some manors, that's what they were called, where lords lived and serfs produced for them, some manors discovered over time small businesses arising. Serfs who ran away to a town would set up a little business. And they would arrange with other serfs who came later, hey, I have an idea, you work for me, I'll give you some money, and what you produce is mine. To make a long story short, inside of feudalism, little bits of capitalism began to grow. It was partly the breakdown of feudalism that enabled capitalist enterprises to get going, and eventually they got big, and eventually they contested and overthrew feudalism. In modern capitalism, worker co-ops, places where workers democratize the enterprise, they reject shareholders, they reject a board of directors of other people, they run the business themselves democratically. That's also developing all over the world, not just in Mondragon, Spain, not just in in a collective of little businesses here or there. You know from this program I talk about it a lot. Those worker co-ops are the beginnings of a mass change, just like the little capitalist enterprises that grew up in the middle of feudal Europe were the beginning of what eventually blew up in the French Revolution as the end of feudalism. Think about it. Change is happening. It's a question of recognizing it, understanding it, and developing where it can go. Revolution has been a dream of human beings for thousands of years, something that survives in the consciousness of desire of human beings is a very profound reality. Making it real is the agenda of the human race just like working out of slavery, working out of feudalism, and working out of capitalism has been. Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, with new episodes coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.